Singularity. My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can help me make this show better in one of two ways. You can go to iTunes and leave a brief review for my show, which does make a big difference. Or you can simply go to Patreon, that is patreon.com forward slash singularity FM and make a donation. Today, my guest on the show is Sean Gorley. Sean is uh, a very super interesting uh, individual that I've been sort of researching and reading from for the last three days. And he has a fascinating journey starting from New Zealand, going to Oxford University and doing a PhD there as a Rhodes Scholar, uh, debating the head of the CIA on the Iraq war, um, getting Peter Thiel as a, as a venture capitalist inventor in his first startup, starting a second startup, and then going into the incredibly important and interesting and fascinating field of big data and analytics. So, Sean, thank you very much for being with us today. It's great to be here, and thanks for having me on board. Fantastic, Sean. Uh, did I slaughter your uh, uh, family name? Is it Gorley? You got it. You actually got it about perfectly right there. Most people, uh, unless you're Scottish, you won't uh, pronounce that right. So, um, Gorley is uh, is perfect. Okay, good. I'm happy. I'm happy. I <laughs> that. The Scottish credibility. <laughs> good. Thank you. All right. Great. So, um, I kind of was struggling here to summarize uh, a, a brief biography of yours to introduce you to, uh, to introduce you by. So if I were to ask you to introduce yourself in your own few words, how would you do that best? Um, I think from from my side, I tend to uh, sort of start off and and, uh, and just sort of firstly say I'm from New Zealand, which gets the accent question out of the way. I think most people sort of wrestle with whether the accent's from New Zealand or from Australia. So sort of good to get that up uh, out front. Um, but no, look, I, I I think for me, look, my 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 career when I, when I think about it has been very much around this understand this this sort of quest to kind of understand the world that we live in and i think i think that's sort of the physicist's uh, journey as as it goes right like as a physicist you're sitting there trying to come up with um, explanations and theories for for how uh, the world is why it is um, and so for me that that took me um, that's taken me on my journey and uh, and now um, uh, you know looking here in, in silicon valley it's about building those tools that kind of help everyone um, understand the world uh, as we see it you know, this is very interesting because uh, a few years ago, maybe it's been a long, long time now, maybe six years ago, I interviewed uh, Werner Vinge. Right. And uh, I asked him, what is science fiction to you? And he gave me a very similar answer. He said, well, science fiction has been for me a tool by which I try to understand and make sense of the universe. <laughs> which... And you both have a sort of a mathematical background, so you you you're kind of using the same tools and and looking to find the same answer in the same method, perhaps. Yeah, look, I think there's a sense of there's there is a deeper truth in, in the universe that we're in, and you know the best that we can do as as sort of humans during our time here is to kind of push push forward the sort of the limits of our understanding and um, you know whether it's whether it's explorations of, uh, of possibilities through through literature and fiction um, in which science fiction is a wonderful tool for exploring um, unencumbered relatively unencumbered the future um, or it's sitting down um, and doing the, the the academic work and the maths 
um, and the uh, the physics, um, or as as I'm doing now, building the tools that can help other people do that as well. And I think I think there's a lot of stuff that we we as humans can do to kind of push um, the boundaries, and you know they all. They all sort of help um, in, in different ways. And uh, I know out here we, we lean, you know, very heavily on science fiction. Uh, we also lean very heavily on uh, on the science, uh, scientific work that's coming out. So um, it, it's great to see that coming together. And we are seeing, for good or for bad, increasingly more that what used to be science fiction is already either science fact or science in the lab, soon to be science fact. So today I want to cover so many topics that I could easily uh, keep you here for three hours, but I know your time is very valuable, so uh, we would get going. And some of those topic, topics, by the way, uh, include stuff like big data, the mathematics of, law, of war, surveillance, privacy, freedom, artificial intelligence, the singularity, propaganda, and ethics. Um, and so let me start by sort of Grounding our conversation, perhaps, with a quote that you uh, sort of wrote in a blog post back in 2013. And here's the quote. The 2012 election will ultimately go down as the prediction election, a.k.a. the Nate Silver election. 2016 may well be the first persuasion election. An election where models accurately predict the likely outcomes of different strategic decisions for both parties in real time, where instead of trying to predict which voters will likely respond favorably to your existing message, you instead find voters that don't like what you are saying and use targeted algorithms to create custom narratives that will change their voting preferences. But of course, one side will only have this technology for so long. Eventually, both sides will have this technology and we move into the world of competition between algorithms. Stay tuned. End of quote. So for me, this was a kind of like a either predictive or foreseeing uh, paragraph that kind of basically describes the current or the latest presidential election, doesn't it? Yeah, I looked back at that. I, I wrote that um, actually coming coming back from uh, um, Japan. I'd sort of been wandering around Japan for a, a week and sort of found myself actually sort of fascinatingly in, in Little America um, in, in Osaka. And um, I was watching the election there. And, and I sort of remember the sort of the lack of surprise that, that I had at the result. It was almost as though it, it sort of you could predict the result and and you sort of take that a step further, right? And you start saying, well, what, what if people don't like the result, right? And then you start thinking about the capabilities to change people's perception or people's belief or people's um, preferences. So I got digging into kind of some of the science that was there. Um, and it, I think the top line of all this was that it, it came out that most of the research would suggest that, that we were much more manipulable um, than we thought. And so this, this, this sort of idea of our political groundings being kind of, you know, really tied to who we are, um, you know, seemed to, to not hold up very strongly with, with the scientific work that was being done. And, and so, you know, if you take a kind of a sense that we're more manipulable, um, then you start looking at the tools that were available for that. And, you know, you look down through, through what we're doing here as as a society in, in Silicon Valley, and, and you, you looked at that time of all the talent and all the people that were working in places like Facebook and Google to um, manipulate people into kind of purchasing things they didn't know they wanted. Um, and so billions of dollars of research and development going into kind of changing people's uh, consumer preferences. 
And it doesn't take a big step coming out of that to say, well, what if you use that to change political preferences? And and so, like, looking at that, I was like, look, this this kind of world of, of prediction, that's gone, right? Like, we're not going to have this election again, because the second thing that's going to happen is people are going to come in and change and try and change people's beliefs. And so prediction models um, start to go out the window because it becomes a race and a competition between persuasion algorithms. So I, I didn't probably predict exactly that it would be this significant. Um, and I don't know, when, you, when you're sort of casting these predictions four years out, you, you have a little little room for, for, for error, but um, it came true a lot more than, than I think anyone thought. Yeah, absolutely. And it was very, very impressive to me. Um, and I want to keep talking about that, but I like to roll back the tape of time a little bit first and start at the beginning. Start at where it all began in Christchurch, New Zealand, didn't it? So tell me, Let's start first with a fun question. Are you a cat person or a dog person? Yeah, a cat person, um, <laughs> for sure. For sure. Well, well, look, so we, we, we grew up, um, I think we inherited a, a stray cat, and so that sort of got us on the journey. Um, and, you know, then we, we, we took a, it was pregnant and had kittens. And so uh, once you've got kittens in the house and you, as, as little kids playing around with kittens, um, you, you, you're going to be like, just take it as a cat person. And I think for me, like, you know, dogs are always happy. They'll see you. It's just like they're your best buddy. The cat, like the cat's the kind of thing that'll sort of look over your shoulder and tell you you got your math equation wrong. And then, you know, decide that it, that's, you know, you're lucky to have it in your house at all. And I don't know, I, I, I kind of, I admire that sort of arrogance from a sort of a non-human <laughs> entity. So definitely cat person. <laughs> yeah, that, that reminds me, Ryan Holiday said once that a cat is just an animal that lives in your house. That's right. They've, they, they're not totally domesticated. I, and I think the story of sort of self-domestication of these animals is just wonderful. So, yeah, definitely cat person. Great. And I know that uh, you were a decathlon athlete too. Yeah, that was, that was most of my, uh, most of my um, growing up. I spent it at a track and, and through university and uh, was lucky enough to, uh, to pick up um, a couple of New Zealand titles in decathlon. And it, it took me around the world and and um and gave me some of my uh, best friends to this day so uh sports sports been a wonderful a wonderful piece of life wow so was it sports that was your first love or was it math <clears throat> um i i think so was, i remember like going back to a little kid there were two things that that, that i would do um like <laughs> which was looking back were probably a little bit strange one was I would at five years old, I would stay awake at night with a torch under my, um, you know, <laughs> with the, with the blankets pulled over my head, like solving um, solving equations in bed, um, which you know, sort of bless bless my parents. They uh, they sort of um, <laughs> gave me some space to do that. The second is I would run everywhere. Um, you know, I was always late for things, and so I was always running um, and just loved running. And uh, so I, the two things I sort of obsessed about growing up were. We're, we're solving math equations and running around. So that, it turns out the two of them go hand in hand really nicely. I think as I've as I've grown up, I think you know math will uh, will make you uh, your, your your brain seem you know like it doesn't work, and running will clear it away. So as long as you kind of got equal kind of weights of running and and mathematics, then uh, they sort of balance out. Alan Turing did that quite a lot too. Yeah, he did. He he was, and uh, we, you know, both him and I also suffer badly from hay fever, which was horrible when I was at Oxford. That there is not 
there is not many places. <laughs> so all these college gardens with these am- amazing kind of flowers and everything. And, and, and there's me kind of sitting there just uh, just sneezing and um, runny eyes and, and the whole time. So, uh, yeah, we were on a number of uh, <laughs> a number of facets. Wow. I thought you were being a New Zealander. You you were like very outdoorsy and you you, you kind of be immunized from a very early age so i i was so yeah i i my um i was born in uh in belgium um and then moved to new zealand when i was about uh two years old so my, my dad was studying uh his uh, degree in, in theology at the the, uh, the university of levain and um and my sister and i were both born in belgium and then my younger brother and my younger sister uh were born in new zealand so interestingly they didn't get hay fever but um the two of us that weren't born in new zealand did so um maybe there's some uh, maybe there's some pattern in that hmm Interesting. You gotta crunch the big data on that and see if there's yeah, that's right. Corre- correlation or causation. Four sample points, so it should be it should be perfectly doable. <laughs> <laughs> well, you start with four data points. I mean, look at Moore's Lost. Well, it's not law, but like started with two or three data points and held up for thirty-five or forty years. Okay, so where does string theory come in? Well, string string theory is always the um, has been for me the uh, when you grew up as a physicist in the uh, in the sort of the late nineties, early two thousands, like the people that were best at math, like the people that were top of their game in math, they they would go to string theory. And you know, if you had any um, if you had any kind of math questions, you'd always go to the string theorists. Um, it's unclear that you know any of the work that they were doing was provable, testable, or, or otherwise falsifiable in our lifetime. But they were very good at math, and that much we were sure of. <laughs> so I, I, I think, yeah, go on. Because I interviewed Lawrence Krauss uh, on my podcast, and we were discussing string field theory, and he said there's not a speck of evidence in support of string field theory, and and actually said a lot worse things than that in in a in a very sort of a dismissive way that it's basically a untestable, unprovable, unquantifiable, and a total probably waste of time. Yeah, look, there, there, there is a there is a strong argument uh, for for that line of thought. Um, the the we'll come back to that on the on the falsifiability uh, sort of uh, requirement for scientific theories. But um, for me, the, the string theory was just a wonderful place to kind of play with math and and a space that um, you know you knew you wouldn't and I would know that I'd never kind of get it get it all solved. So. So string theory for me is kind of a place to go back that's kind of decoupled from the world where I can I can play with math in a in a framework where there's some wonderful thinkers in mathematics um, and it, and it gives me just sort of an escape um, you know to to go and go back and play with physics um, but I don't I don't have any sort of um, you know expectations that uh, that we'll get any answers uh, in our lifetime to that stuff I hope we do. But um, I'm, I'm sort of resigned to the fact that uh, that may well remain untestable for the next 50 years. Well, one thing that we got some very surprising answers to was the mathematics of war. So tell me how you go on a Rhodes Scholar to Oxford University and then how someone who is like an athlete and very keenly interested in, in math and string theory in other words, at least academically, those are things that are very sort of non-practical, if you will. Uh, I mean, string th- theory, like it doesn't get, <laughs> right? So, and then how do you shift your attention to something very practical and, and sort of a matter of immediate life and death, if you will, such as the mathematics of war? 
Yeah, so look, I think it was really interesting coming across um, to Oxford. I, I'd, I'd done my um, master's degree in nanotechnology and had sort of pushed the uh, the twelve hour days in the lab and 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 you know setting up experiments and and recording and and like I, I think two things came out of that. One was I got to Oxford and it was full of fascinating people. Like the people that were there were just amazing. And um, I was like, you know, I would be doing myself a disservice if I locked myself in a lab here for the next four or five years. So that was kind of one piece of that. I think the second, um, you know, of this was, you know, I think both with nanotechnology, also a string theory, you start pushing the edges of the human experience. And I, I think for me, physics had always been about explaining the world and, and particularly the world around uh, uh, me. Um, and I think the further you go into cosmology, the further you go into, uh, quantum, uh, mechanics, uh, you, you sort of remove the human aspect from, from the direct experience. Um, and how do you come back then to the human aspect of war and math? Yeah. So, you know, I think particularly from New Zealand, which is like so far away from kind of anything, you know, uh, of, of, of global conflict, but you know, going there as a Rhodes Scholar, you you immerse yourself with um, a huge amount of people that are very much on the on the political, um, on the uh, international relations, um, you know, on on the uh, the sort of the the social sciences side of the equation, right? So a lot of Rhodes scholarship is still law and politics, um, and and as a as a sort of a PhD in physics, you're kind of a little bit um, you know different from from that. Um, so I think the, the, the Rhodes Scholar community was was um, was sitting there. I mean, we had Chelsea Clinton was was there at Oxford at the time. Not not a Rhodes Scholar, but she was, you know, there. The you know Bill Clinton would come for Thanksgiving. Um, you would you would have the, the <laughs> play Thanksgiving football, right? Yeah. So you you had you had a a huge American presence. You had a huge kind of debate at the time around the efficacy of of the Iraq War. You had at the same time um, the the sort of the complexity of this this new kind of war with insurgency that we didn't really understand, and so the Rhodes community, like it was it was massively the focus of um, of what was going on, what we should do about it, whether we should be there, um, you know, whether we shouldn't be there, um, you know, exactly what was happening, what the right strategy was, um, should you know should uh, should the Bath Party exist, should it not? So like as I sort of sat there, like that was the conversation every night over dinner. And at some point I was like, well, all right, we can keep talking about this or we can start to like measure this. So the physicist in me kind of came out and I started to say, well, well, if we, if we did measure this, what would we measure? And, you know, what would it tell us? And, you know, if we've got, if we've got hypotheses about how uh, war and insurgency works, well, let's test these things. And so I, I guess it was just sort of um, an, an approach of having sat there at the table, listened to these conversations uh, for so long and, and, and sort of deciding, right, well, let's, let's go and investigate this. And, um, and that got me off on my journey. And, uh, and again, you know, it was one of those ones that you kind of, you pull a thread and you keep pulling that thread and it becomes more and more interesting as it comes along. I think at the same time, you know, we were seeing for the first time the emergence of, um, of, uh, new, new forms of media. And, um, you know, I, I still remember like we, you know, 2002, we had these, these things called blogs, right. And, <laughs> there was these blogs coming out of Iraq and it was, it was like, we forget now how kind of like, um, you know, normal this is, but that was the first sort of sense of this, of this, um, self publishing on mass. And, um, you know, that, that was also a new data stream that was coming in that we didn't have before, which made sort of investigation, um, you know, feasible. So was that the kind of conversation you, you had with the former CIA director? 
Yeah, so we were sitting down. I, I remember it was kind of like the, um, I, I, I think the, the, the slight kind of naivety uh, of, of, uh, of um, you know, Oxford Road scholars and you sort of, you sort of, I, I, I hear the former CIA director was coming in to town and we, I, you know, emailed them and said, like, we need to sit down and, and talk and, and a couple of us grabbed him. We had, we had a, we had a few, uh, a few um, uh, drinks, I think, and, and sat down and talked and, you know, he discussed kind of like how he saw the situation in Iraq and uh, and the opportunity. And this was prior to the uh, prior to the invasion. And um, you know, he put forward a case that was um, you know fairly compelling and it was very pragmatic. And it was like you know you know here's here's how you know um, this is going to play out if we don't go in, and here's how this is going to play out if we do go in. And so on balance, you know, it was it was all very rational and and that. And it was funny. I was sitting there. I was like, I'm not sure I agree with you. But it was funny. I, I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't give you a counter argument other than ideologically why I, I, I disagree with you. And and so this is kind of this, this thing. And I think it was it was it was that realization of sitting down of like you can have very smart people put forward an argument about how things might play out, um, and you can counter that with how they might play out a different way. But at the end of the day, you're sitting there, you know, pulling um, you know uh, philosophical um, arguments mostly. And it, it seemed to me like this was a, 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 an incredibly primitive way of going about making decisions um, that had huge ramifications and huge effect. And so as, as we were sort of sitting down on this, it was, it was a very, very strong kind of signal for me coming out of that. It's like, wow, we, we, need to, we need to understand this world that we're in. Um, and we are probably not going to do it just with um, political ideologies. We're going to need something a little um a little closer to uh to mathematics to help us um help us navigate that all mm -hmm. so then you actually ended up on the battlefield in iraq yeah um how did that work out and 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 why did you first of all why did you decide to go there and and how did it the whole thing work out yeah so look i i wasn't there pulling triggers and uh, i wasn't there um in a sort of a, uh, a sense of a soldier, I was, I was there um, very much um, with research and um, and uh, field research. To, yeah, there was a bit of that exactly. Um, battlefield research. Yeah, battlefield research. Yeah. I, I, so look, I, I'd, I'd been studying this stuff for about five years um, at that time, and this was coming into uh, the end of '08 um, when I when I went out there, and I went and uh, it had got in contact with um, with Baram Saleh who was um, the deputy prime minister of Iraq at that time and a very, um, a very uh, influential Kurdish uh, leader. And, um, you know, I, I think when I got that um, email, he'd been aware of my research. And, um, you know, he said, look, you know, fascinating the stuff. We got chatting um, backwards and forwards. And he's like, look, you know, we want to have these conversations in person, sit down, like, you know, see what's going on, see if you can kind of help us understand um, the, the dynamics of the insurgency that's happening inside of our country. And for me, having studied this um, from afar for five years, um, where everything was kind of lines and equations um, and, and data points, um, there was a real sense of like, well, I have to go and see this other side of the story, right? I have to go and see what that looks like or feels like, you know, when you're on the ground there. And, you know, that that I think was was one of those ones like when I went, when I got that invitation, I was like, I'm not sure I want to go, but I kind of I'm, I kind of have to go. And um, I think that was. Uh, that was that experience um, that you know was was uh, the different that that other side of that equation, and um, you know. 
How long did you stay there? I was there for about three weeks um, when I was there. So not, not a huge amount of time. Did you travel? Yeah, I did. I, I spent time um, up in, uh, in, in Kirkuk and Mosul and Sulaymaniyah and Erbil um, up in the northern parts. Um, and uh, it, it, was, it was fascinating kind of seeing, um, seeing that kind of dynamic. And That's mostly the Kurdish area. Yeah, it was mostly the Kurdish space. It was sort of where we, we sort of had protection security with, uh, with Bahram Salah there. And, um, you know, the, uh, I didn't get down to the green zone in Baghdad, um, which I think would have been fascinating just seeing the sort of the Americanization of a, uh, of a, of a city, um, or at least the kind of a portion of that city. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been interesting now, particularly seeing, uh, seeing the likes of Mosul kind of unfold, um, with ISIS and, um, and, and certainly looking back and seeing some of the, uh, the seeds of, uh, of, of that future conflict kind of playing out, um, which has now been, you know, 15 years. So if you were to summarize what you learned, both from your theoretical uh, or not theoretical, but sort of data-driven uh, work in research and your practical experience in the field, what did you learn about the mathematics of war or insurgency? Yeah, th look, th that's, that's really interesting. I think for, for me, one thing that, that, that emerges on that is, is when you're on the ground, it, it's, it's sort of chaotic, right? Like there'll be... At night, there'll be there'll be AK fire. There'll be you know convoys rolling through. There'll be protests there. There'll be suicide bombs that'll go off, and you'll hear a bang. Um, there'll be bodies on the street in the morning, um, you know, with with drill drills through their head, right? Like this kind of story of pretty horrific violence, the the chaos that that kind of comes through that, and and at the same time, these very very harrowing personal stories of of families that, you know, had, you know, lost, you know, had lost sons and daughters, um, but things that had gone back even to the time of Saddam when they were kids, you know, being put in the back of a tractor and taken up a hill because someone smelled mustard gas um, and there was an attack on the town, right? So this, this, this sort of generational story of violence and, and the, the, the sort of the real time kind of like feeling of, um, you know, uncertainty when you, when you sort of go out in the street and, and you're not sure you know, exactly, you know, your safety, right? So you're sitting there and, and that makes no sense, right? Like you're just sort of experiencing and it's very, very hard to kind of step away from it, right? So there are these very, very personal stories of people whose lives have just been shaped entirely by these conflicts. Um, and then at the same time, you, you step out and you see these numbers and these numbers um, start to give them a predictability of, of violence, um, which conforms to a set of relatively simple mathematical equations and more so that this predictability um, translates across war zones so the 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 mathematical um, experience um, or, or the the experience is governed by the mathematical equations in Iraq are very similar to the experience governed by the mathematical equations in Afghanistan and Colombia and Sierra Leone and Northern Ireland and it's this this the sense there that you're living this very, very personal story on the ground, but you're part of this um, pattern that you don't even see um, or that you can't see, perhaps, um, that's, that's bigger than just you and the war that you're in, but is something that is somewhat fundamental or that seems to be fundamental to the nature of human conflict globally. And so you, you I think, hold the two sides of this um, story, one of, of, of uh, intensely personal, deeply emotional and there's some 
the other side of it being kind of coldly mathematical and, and strangely predictable. And, um, you know, I think amongst our sort of lived experience, there's probably a little bit of that um, amongst all of us and everything that we do. So what does that mathematics predict? When you say predictable, what is the, the moral? What is the lesson? What does it predict about conflict or insurgency or humanity? Yeah. So the first things you sort of found on that, um, it, it goes through and you start looking at the statistical um, properties of violence, right? And so the things we're able to do was to start to train systems to read and understand language, um, to understand uh, violence of, of when attacks happened, where they happened, uh, and and kind of you know how many people were killed in them. So you think of those kind of three components, a geographic, a temporal, and, and a sort of a magnitude. And the first thing we looked at was magnitude, right, the size of these attacks. And you can kind of come up with different proxies for the size of an attack, but number of people killed is a reasonable proxy. And when you start looking at that inside of um, Iraq, you see a, a power law distribution with an exponent of, uh, of negative 2.5, right? So that's the statistical uh, pattern, and it's very, very precise, and it runs across a large um, number of magnitude uh, in terms of the size from from you know one through to kind of you know above a thousand people being killed. So you've got a you've got a pattern that seems to persist um, across a number of magnitudes and is 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 uh, is fairly strongly um, is fairly strongly observed in Iraq. You see the same pattern uh, in, in the size of attacks um, in, in other conflict zones in in, uh, in Afghanistan and Colombia as well. Um, so we looked at about a dozen of these different conflict zones, and we found this pattern uh, repeating itself, and not just a power distribution, but also the exponent uh, clustering around this value of 2.5. So that was the first kind of pattern um, statistically. Um, the second pattern looking at things we found was um, the temporality, so the timing of attacks. So the first thing we found was that these were not random temporally, that they'd actually cluster together in a bursty dynamics, so that there'd be a sense of, of being very non-Personian in the distribution. So you could look at bursty dynamics um, as, as, uh, as being characteristic of attacks. The second bit on that, interestingly, was, um, was the feedback loops that would come from those attacks. And so an attack would happen, people would observe it, and then you know, you'd start to imitate or start to replicate the kind of dynamics that you'd seen. So there was a sort of a communication network um, that was running through the media where, where that would act as a broadcasting mechanism so that people could get uh, evidence of the attacks that were happening. The, um, the second bit that became uh, more interesting on top of that was looking at the, uh, the sort of um, S-curves that would emerge uh, as people became uh, adept at new kinds of technology. So if you zoomed into a particular region and looked at a certain kind of an attack, let's call it a suicide bomb, there was this timing between attacks um, that would start to compress. And so the timing between attacks would get smaller and smaller. And that was effectively the same S-curve that would emerge in different regions. And that was basically giving evidence that there was uh, an innovation curve uh, as people became better at doing those attacks. And that S-curve, again, like replicated itself across the different regions of Iraq and Afghanistan. And so, you know, the, 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 the dynamics of, uh, of, of people learning how to do skills um, would, would also transfer to learning how to do uh, attacks. And the final one that we looked at was, was looking at the geographic diffusion of violence and seeing it actually conform um, to the road networks um, that had been laid on top of the country. And that was very, very interesting for a number of reasons. One was this kind of idea that there was an underlying network that would govern violence that wasn't geographic, but it was man-made. It was the roads that um, started to, to, to make that, uh, that uh, impact but the second bit was when people would start to measure violence. And so there was a study that came out 
um, of the Lancet, um, which was trying to estimate the number of people that had died, um, that actually made the mistake of, um, of sampling uh, without um, taking into account uh, the road networks um, that were kind of creating a geographic clustering of violence. So we sort of started to investigate all these different pieces, and you see these different statistical signatures and the size of attacks, the timing of attacks, and the location of attacks. And so that's the first step, right? Like, you know, you got these patterns, but where things became really interesting um, was when you start to explain these things. And so now you're building simulations um, of, of uh, insurgencies, and you're looking to see if these characteristics um, of timing, size, and geographic diffusion uh, would manifest themselves uh, from the simulations that you made. And that, that brings about two points there. The first is, if you've just got the statistical patterns, you can make fairly good predictions, right? Because these statistical patterns wouldn't exist if you, if you didn't uh, have something that was predictable, right? It would just be random. So you can predict quite straightforwardly just by, you know, looking at the patterns, uh, timing, size, location, and you can make reasonably good predictions. But of course, um, the very next step on that, you say, well, I don't want an, a suicide bomb of 100 people in this town the next month right? So like, how do I change that? And that's where you start going in and saying, well, what are the models that uh, give rise to these patterns, right? What are the dynamics of insurgency that makes them so successful? Um, and how do we disrupt that? And the, the very interesting thing that we started to push that research forward was, was this idea of, of, um, of how do you break apart insurgencies? And what's the end state of an insurgency? And, and how is it evolving and adapting through time? And so that's where you can actually run these simulations. You can run a, different kinds of attack strategies inside of these simulations, and you can start to see which ones are the most effective. And, um, and that's where I think this becomes very, very powerful is because, again, now you, you have a model of how the insurgency works, and you have a theory to test that against, which have a, you know, experimental uh, observational evidence, um, which you can test against. And so you know, we sort of go back to that conversation at the start with, with, with the, the former head of the CIA. You move from ideology um, and uh, and um, and debate uh, to kind of a grounding in a theory. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, so we're actually kind of closing the loop here because we started our conversation by talking about the American elections and how we were moving from prediction to changing or influencing the outcome and breaking the patterns or shifting them. And now we're we went through the same idea or the idea actually originated it seems to me on the battlefield in Iraq with their insurgency not only to observe and predict it but how do you mold and eventually defeat it so tell me how do you start with like you know your string field theory going through the battlefield in Iraq and doing the mathematics of war and ending up as an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley yeah right well the first thing look I came I came back um I came back out of uh, my time in Iraq and I'd had, um, you know, I guess the, uh, the five years of research before that. And it, the first thing was, it was just like, I'm, you know, I need, I need a break from this. This is, uh, you know, <laughs> I need, need a space to get away from, from all of this conflict. And, um, you know, it was coming uh, in the end of 08, start of 09, um, the global financial crisis. And, uh, you know, I was I was looking for different places, and it turned out there wasn't very many places where you could still kind of um, have money to do anything. Um, and um, and Silicon Valley was one of those places. I'd um, been fortunate enough to be out here uh, working at NASA, um, you know, as part of a uh, a, um, a sabbatical during my PhD. I'd done um, I'd done six months work out at NASA Ames, 
And um, I'd really loved California. And particularly, I think after you spent a number of uh, winters in, um, in uh, London, you know, California seemed pretty interesting. So it, it seemed like a nice place um, as, as any in the world, you know, with sunshine and, uh, and um, there was still kind of like some optimism um, and uh, sort of attracted to optimism, I think, the rest of the world. And particularly you look at New York. And On the other hand, so, so you're comparing it to a winter in, uh, in London, but on the other hand, I spent some time in uh, San Fr- well, in, in, on NASA's Ames campus, two and a half months, 10 weeks, two in 2011. And I got reminded to a quote by Mark Twain, who said that the coldest uh, winter that he has ever lived through was a summer in San Francisco. Yeah, well, see, this is, this is the, ch- you know, this is true. <laughs> <laughs> see, but they don't tell you this when you come out here. It's just all like... California and particularly like the, um, you know, you, you come out and you're part of California and your first, your first kind of week here, you know, when three o'clock rolls around and the fog, you know, comes in off the bay and you're like, my God, this is freezing. Um, and so, yeah, look, I, th- I think there's sort of like false advertising in, in San Francisco as to how good the weather is. Um, it gets everyone here, but then I think uh, once you're here, you can fall in love with the city for different reasons. Um, <laughs> but I would say, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'd, I'd still take I'd still take the sunshine in the morning and the fog in the evening over a over a miserable London uh, winter day any day. So I'm 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 happy with I'm happy with this decision. And uh, if you don't like the weather in San Francisco, drive an hour north and hour south, and uh, and you've got sunshine again. Okay. Fantastic. So you are in San Francisco. You have all this unique experience, both practically point of view from the battlefield in Iraq. But, but also this sort of theoretical uh, big data understanding of the mathematics of war. So how do you come up with the idea of quid and what is your value proposition? Yeah, so, so I'd come out here. There was a few things that were going on. The, the, the first is I, I, you know, I, I definitely didn't want to come back and dive back into kind of something that was focused in on conflict. And I think... There was two pieces for that. One was personal um, at that time. And the second um, was I didn't think that the technology was quite commercializable at that point. There was a lot more work that needed to be done in terms of understanding language and um, and in terms of uh, the um, the kinds of uh, predictive work that would need to be done on top of that. So we sort of the first step of that, that didn't quite feel like that was ready for commercial um, space. But but what did um, fascinate me was was this this idea of a couple of things that had emerged. One was, as we studied these ecosystems in in, in Iraq and looking at insurgencies, it was it was very much about the interaction between the components. And so I, I, I think when you build these ecological models um, or models models that are kind of inspired by ecology, you you look very much at the things like food webs and predator prey dynamics and um, it's the interaction between objects that become more important, perhaps, than the objects themselves. And so that, that, was, that was where it sort of leads to this idea of, of networks and, um, and, and interactions. And so network theory was, was something that, you know, was, was, um, was very, very interesting um, to me and something that I'd spent time with um, in, as part of um, my research into conflict. The second bit on that was, was looking particularly come from my work and and, and and sort of th- that I'd done, you know, in, in mathematics of high dimensional um, objects. And so, of course, when you're in string theory, you're in high dimensions and you talk a lot about dimensional manipulation. And one of the things that kind of came from that was, you know, we as humans can kind of interact with two and three dimensional objects fairly nicely. But beyond that, we, we really do struggle. 
So about how do you take interactions that are happening in a high dimensional space and project them down to a lower dimensional space that we humans can engage with? And if we do that, we can start to see much more about the, the ecosystem that's involved uh, rather than just the, uh, the objects themselves. And so this was kind of the thinking that kind of came through. I'm not sure, like, it, when I sat down and came out here in, in, in 09, I was like, this is exactly what I'm doing. I, I know where I'm going. But I was kind of interested in those points. And it was kind of then a question of, well, what does that mean technologically-wise? Like, how feasible is this to do technologically? And the second was, is, is, there, a, is there a market or business for that? Um, and so, you know, we sat down through that and, uh, you know, we went through and, and, uh, started to explore, um, that space. And it turned out that, um, the, the most interesting kind of dynamic of that, there were two things that, um, emerged. Uh, one was the emergence of technology, um, and technological ecosystems. Um, and so you could actually map technological ecosystems and the interactions, um, between those, um, and, and actually map them as they evolve. And so these, these things like, you know, big data and, um, you know, uh, online advertising and, um, you know, uh, clean tech and, and all that, all of a sudden concepts that were slightly amorphous could become very, very um, concrete. And um, you, you could see these maps of technology. The second was you could see maps of ideas. And, and these were um, like sort of like what, what, are the, what is the landscape of ideas? And these things that are kind of amorphous that we think about um, and but we never really map or understand, all of a sudden you could, um, you could to a reasonable degree, uh, train computers to observe them and, and then also project them down into, uh, into a visual representation and lower dimensional space that we can interact with. And the results are fascinating. Like for me as a, as, as a sort of a physicist, kind of you know, curious about the world, you know, being able to render thousands of, of objects in, inside of a, a WebGL, um, you know, visual interface and manipulate them and, and kind of wind time forwards and backwards and kind of see, you know, things that, you know, are only existing as kind of concepts and conversations, actually see them, on, you know, in, in, in a, a sort of a, a real way. Um, that, that's what we did with Quid. And, and I think we, you know, got that into the hands of a lot of people that that has shared that fascination of, of um, the complexity of the world, but wanted to get a handle on it. So if we are just to simplify all of that, what's the value proposition of quid in a sentence, perhaps, and how do you monetize it? Yeah, so the, the value proposition of quid was um, being able to see the things that were unseeable. And, um, you know, if, if you're... Uh, the two monetized places for that, actually, one, one ended up into the consultancy space. So you look at the McKinsey's, the BCG's um, of the world, some of the biggest uh, consultancies. Um, they can take a, a map, a, a space of, uh, of technology uh, for, for mergers and acquisitions or for strategic positioning. And, you know, within a couple of minutes, um, you, can, uh, you can have that map. Um, uh, and uh, that's, that's a wonderful kind of um, you know, uh, output that their customers um, or their, you know, I guess their clients um, can engage with. So if you're looking at Internet of Things and um, I told you go ahead and, you know, you know, analyze the Internet of Things for me, you would come back with a list of kind of companies inside of that. But there'd be no relationships between them. 
right? Whereas if you take quid, you can see that map and you can see those relationships. And the relationships are actually the important pieces of this. But you can also scrub the time backwards and say, how was it in you know, 2012 and how did it evolve and what's the white spaces that exist between things? And so this idea of white spaces becomes incredibly interesting is this combination of two different technological components um, that start to emerge. And so, you know, an example of that that you'd never see with these lists is, you know, we're looking back in 20, um, 2013 at, at UAVs and um, we're seeing UAVs emerge and you saw uh, this kind of interesting dynamic of UAVs um, uh, flying uh, small, you know, aircraft and, and so on. But you also saw an interesting dynamic of um, fleet tracking, uh, so software for tracking fleets of these things. And in the middle of that, between fleet tracking and the UAVs, um, these two clusters, um, was these, this technology that was military radar, uh, portable military radar, that wasn't used for UAVs. It was used for putting up and around a perimeter um, of defenses on, on a forward deployed base. And the reason it was between that was because um, it did a bit of tracking of objects and uh, you know, it, it allowed small, um, you know, tracking of small objects to emerge. So we're able to see on that and say, well, you, you should be able to repurpose that technology to track UAVs. And that's going to be very, very interesting to do as you track UAVs inside of cities. So if you think about UAVs emerging and populating um, and becoming proliferous, like you're not going to have them flying around cities without the ability to track them. So you, you start, so, so as that stuff comes through, you start seeing this dynamic. Now, what became very, very interesting is now we're seeing the first uh, portable uh, radars being deployed inside of cities to track UAVs. So that gives you this kind of perspective of this world five years um, in advance because you're seeing the combinations of technologies that already exist and you're able to identify the white spaces between them. Now, it of course requires a human to kind of look at this. The machine's not sitting down and kind of making this prediction, but it gives you the map that you can then look at the state of where the world is, where the world's come from, and you can make your projections about where it might go. And it sort of like speaks to this idea of the adjacent possible. And like when, when you're creating the future, when you're looking to predict the future, the adjacent possible is a very, very interesting place to look. On the other side of that um, was, was the same thing, but for ideas. And that found a home inside of the advertising community. So with, um, you know, Publicist Group and uh, um, another of the other big firms would, would do this, but they would look at um, ideas and stories um, around things like, you know, um, you've got a, a deodorant campaign and you're looking for ideas around manliness, right? You know, what does it mean to be manly? And, you know, the old process on that, you know, you know, very literally is the creatives would, would um, often lock themselves in a room that probably get high, that flip through magazines and then pin them up on boards and then go and like come up, you know, with, with an idea out of magic. What we could do on that with, with the software was to, to sit down and take everything that's ever been written about manliness and, and map it in the same way. And so you get ideas of what manliness means in, in, in sport and the football, what manliness means in Russia, what manliness means in China. You know, this idea that's, that's sort of way out there of manliness and space and space is the most manly kind of thing, right? It's sort of the, all the kind of manifestations of these ideas and you can map that out. And then the creative is then able to navigate through that and say, where do I kind of want to take a narrative that exists and attach it to a brand? And so the technology, again, it allowed for this visual representation of things as amorphous as um, UAVs or manliness and actually make them concrete and put it into the hands so you could sit down and do something with it. So the technology, I would still say, is, um, has been 
you know, we have not even got close to pushing kind of the boundaries of, of what that can all do. And um, I, 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 I'm still fascinated to it to this day, like what you can do when you're able to, to visually interact with high dimensional objects. And um, you, you literally can um, see the future as you start looking through that. I, I, I really believe that the future is encoded into what we see today. And if you're smart about reading these things, you can see the future through that. And just as a point on that, we, uh, we did a, 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 a prediction um, in 2009 with, um, with Bloomberg um, and said, they said, pick up a number of technology companies that, you know, um, your software is seeing that look interesting. And, um, you know, we, we did, we came up with a list um, and gave it to them and it was published. And uh, they came back and checked on that um, about six years after that. And it would have been the best um, VC fund in history um based on that. it was it was that good and so you know it's one of those ones that you look through and uh i i, I think it's it's that sense that the, the world as we observe it um and i'm sort of up close and personal seems very chaotic it seems very noisy much like you know when you're on the ground in iraq but when you look back at the world from a tool of of of, of, uh, of enough data and and visualize that in a way that's meaningful to, to us as humans all of a sudden patterns emerge and um, and the future becomes much more predictable. I'm trying to remember the name. What was that New York billionaire who funded Cambridge Analytica? Uh, Rick Mercer? What? Yeah, Mercer? I think it was, yeah, Mercer. Mercer, yeah. And, and he's a former computer scientist slash smart algorithm kind of guy. And that's how he made his billions precisely, right? Yeah, the, if you've got tools that see a high dimensionality, um, that gets you a little closer to the complexity of the reality that we're in. Um, you are going to beat people that are only seeing things on a lower dimensional or a human experience. And this is this, this is this thing, right? You, you spend enough time with these tools and you become very, very humble about what you know, because every time you're confronted with the stuff, you're like, oh man, I thought I knew this. And you're confronted with this, this computer representation of how the world is that is very, very different. Um, and you do that enough times, you just start you know, realizing that your view of the world is, is wrong. And, um, you know, you become very humble about that. And I think if nothing else, it removes that sense of ego that you know how things are and you, you, you kind of default back to, uh, to realizing that you, you, you don't know, but if you sit down and kind of think through things, you can maybe get, you know, a little more, a little deeper understanding. And I think, I think, you know, that that's there. I think on the other side is, you know, we're seeing of these tools, like, you know, you could literally map out every, every single idea, have it at your fingertips, navigate through it, you know, while the rest of the world is consuming data, you know, through a Facebook newsfeed that's designed to manipulate them into kind of purchasing a, a product they didn't want. And, and so like, if you put those two up against each other, you know, you, the, the people that are looking at this with, with um, the right tools are going to see things that the people, the rest of the world looking at it in a very, um, a very limited way aren't going to see. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, there's definitely a sense of an arms race and the technology that you can deploy and finance um, to, to see the world and a deeper truth behind it. Mm -hmm. This is all fascinating, but I want to come back to it a little bit later. I want to go through primer first. So, um, you you got quit. It's running. It's it's this fascinating um, new startup company, which is not new anymore, but was back then. And by the way, for our audience, there's two fantastic TEDx talks that you did, both on the mathematics of war as well as on uh, big data and what quit does. That I recommend everyone should go and watch. Um, so, 
Oh, and, and by the way, uh, we were talking about how you monetize. So you're talking about data. Uh, we were talking about the world of ideas and we're talking about consulting, but it also appears to me that that would apply very strongly towards, of course, uh, military and defense. And we started with uh, Iraq, for example, where that kind of the whole thing started, if you will, in a way. Um, so is it is it fair to say that Quid is also a defense con contractor? Yeah, so um, Quid um, uh, picked up some uh, some work um, with uh, DIUX, which was the innovation arm um, of uh, the Defense Department out in uh, out in San Francisco, or I guess out in Mountain View, really. Um, and so, yeah, it's done some work um, with uh, the defense side of the equation. I don't think it's uh, it's a, a huge part of the revenue stream, but um, there's certainly a component of that, and the technology, um, you know, was was deployed, uh, you know, with um, through DIUX and. Um, and uh, yeah, but again, I don't think it's a huge piece of that of that puzzle. Interesting, and and it's interesting how uh, and Peter Thiel was one of the the angels. He was. He was. Um, he was an angel investor uh, right back at the start of the uh, the company. And this is uh, this is pre Facebook IPO. This is uh, this is um, this is uh, I think even maybe pre billionaire Peter Thiel. Um, and so uh, we got a lot more time. Um, <laughs> with him in those days, uh, but he was he was a, a very very interesting character, and uh, um, the, the the conversations that we've had, um, you know, as as we were forming uh, this company, um, were, were were fascinating um, to kind of uh, to kind of sit down and um, and talk through the ramifications of uh, of being able to see things that other people weren't seeing, and I think you know Peter Thiel as a contrarian. Um, you know, kind of first and foremost, um, you know, was was absolutely fascinated by these kinds of uh, these kinds of insights that you could see that perhaps um, you know other people weren't seeing. And of course, he already had Palantir going. That's right, he did. And so Palantir at that time was uh, was um, you know a, a good a good way along to sort of the behemoth that it is today. And um, so yeah, he was um, you know, and Palantir had shared a lot of. Um, you know, the same, same kind of, you know, approach of like, how do you visually represent, you know, um, a lot of interactions and, uh, you know, building tool sets and interfaces to, uh, to allow people to, uh, to explore data in new ways. And so, uh, yeah, Peter was, a was, was a great first investor for that company. And, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, provided a, a lot of kind of input into the, uh, to the ideas, um, that became, uh, became a key piece of, uh, of what we ended up building. How big is Squid now? So Quid now, I think, is about 100 and, uh, 120 people um, down still in San Francisco and, uh, you know, amassing uh, an ever larger kind of, you know, user base of... Um, has an office in New York, in London. Yep, London, New York. Um, it's, it's, it's global. They've got, you know, uh, user meetups um, around the world and, and uh, the, uh, the explorer groups uh, that they, they run the conferences on top of. So for me, it's been, it's been wonderful seeing this tool that, that, that I built that allows people to see high-dimensional structures of the world around them, get into the hands um, of, of, of different people. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think there's a certain kind of person that gets fascination about exploring these spaces. Um, and it's basically, you know, predicated on this idea of uh, if I put this data in front of you and you go, wow, you know, I can explore this and figure out what's going on. You're probably a good quid user. If you come back and say, what am I supposed to do with this or, or what question am I supposed to ask? You know, where's its answer? You're, that's probably not the right tool for you. So it's it's the people that, that are curious about the world that, that need to navigate through pretty amorphous spaces um, 
that that's that's a wonderful thing because you can explore data that you never would have otherwise seen. Mm. Uh, is is it possible for you to share the sort of the rough annual revenue or something like that? Yeah, I'm not um, actually uh, familiar with the, uh, the the actual revenue numbers. I've been I've been out of the company now for about three years, um, so I, I could you know I could estimate where it is, but um, I I don't know uh, the exact numbers of that at the moment. Do you still have shares though and stuff? I do. I, I still I still maintain a, a, a good ownership of, of that company and uh, looking forward to uh, to um, uh, to hopefully, uh, hopefully, cashing some uh, some of that out at some point. <laughs> Great. So, so you got quit going. It's a very successful company now, all over the world. You know, hundred and forty people. I think you said offices in New York, San Francisco, London, growing. Now, why and how do you decide to break away and start another company called Primer? Yeah. So look, when I when I came out here to San Francisco, I think there were there were two things that were important. One is I wanted to turn the research that I'd done um, in the mathematics of war into a uh, into an actual um, technology that we could get in front of everyone. So that was the first, and there was some unfinished business there because I didn't believe that the current technology landscape in 2009 would make that possible. So that was the first. The second was, you know, I ultimately came out here. Um, as a founder, um, you know, to build to build companies and push technology forward, and um, I think you get about five or six years at a company to do that, and after that, it starts to become more an exercise and and distribution, marketing, sales, and uh, and the rest of that. And so, when I came through five six years at Quid, it became sort of clear that most of the, the major technological breakthroughs, you know, had been done, and um, I was still passionate about you know pushing technology forward. But the second um, piece of that is we'd seen the growth of neural networks um, pertaining to, to first speech, but then images. And it became clear to me that the next um, piece of that was going to be language. And that gave me a sense that we could go back to uh, the world that we were um, in and, and uh, the research I was doing and actually apply these new uh, techniques of language um, to, uh, to actually understand in much, much higher resolution uh, what, what's actually going on in the world. Mm -hmm. So... So tell us what is Primer and how is it different from Quid or how does it push the envelope further? Yeah. So the, the main thing we've, we've got here is, is the, there's two pieces of this. If you're going to build systems to observe the world, you're either going to have to build a visual interface um, to let people navigate through it, or you're going to have to train uh, the system to uh, write and, and to communicate via language. And um, Quid, Palantir, um, a lot of the, the other kinds of tools of that era, it was um, let's let's observe the world and give you a visual interface. Where we are now is we can generate language. And once you generate language, I can observe the world and I can teach you about the world in, in a very straightforward way that feels very, very human. So where, where we are with, with, with Primer is, um, is, is coupling up this reading and this writing. And what that gives you is um, it gives you an ability to observe the world and um, to communicate it back in, in written language. And, and that starts to feel very, very human. So when we deploy that um, into intelligence use cases, it starts to write the first draft of, of the, uh, the daily briefing. Um, when you deploy it into the financial space, it observes the world um, and can tell you the stories um, of what's significant, what's important for, for the holdings that you have when you deploy it into the commercial um, sector, you can write up, um, you know, the observations about your sales information or the insights that come from uh, your consumers as that goes through. So this this power of writing is incredibly 
um, valuable um, because it requires much, much less overhead to engage with. And so you can start to encode um, the knowledge that we have about how the world is and how it's changing. And you can encode that into a written format. And that written format can be personalized just for you. Um, and so if, if you already know something, you know, about the space, um, the written format can, you know, acknowledge that and, and, and start to uh, start to kind of describe it in more depth and detail. But if you're brand new to the space, it can uh, it can construct something that um, gets you up to speed very quickly. So language is very, very powerful on that. The second thing I think we've got here is, you know, what you could do with Quid and what you could do with um, the likes of Palantir. We're very much kind of orientated around, you know, in, in natural language processing, what we call bag of words. So you have the words, but you don't really understand the relationship between the words. What you've got now is you start to, you know, very, very clearly know that, you know, there's a relationship between A and B. Um, you know the kind of relationship that is. Um, you you know that you know this is a claim and this is a contradiction to that claim. Um, so you can get some really really interesting um, understanding of exactly what is being said, um, as opposed to just the words that are being used. Mm -hmm. So if you were to summarize that in a sentence, what's the value proposition of Primer? So for, for Primer, um, so we're earlier in our um, technological development, um, and so for us, there's a couple of pieces of this. One is First and foremost, it's a technology-driven um, uh, endeavor at the moment, and that's to improve the quality of our ability to read and our quality of our ability to write. And um, that, that's first and foremost, that's there. You mean machine's ability, not our as humans, yeah, yeah, machine's yeah. ability to read and yeah, write. Yeah, exactly. So training machines to read and write. And um, yeah, when I talk about our, I mean primers, uh, machines um, that we build. So, so look, you know, that, that, that's first and foremost. Um, once, once we've done that, um, you know, the, the, the second bit is you can think about the monetization side. You know, we've got some good initial customers. Um, you know, we've uh, uh, deployed this technology with um, a number of U.S. intelligence agencies. We've deployed it with a number of financial institutions. And we've also deployed it with a number of uh, large commercial, you know, companies. And, um, you know, those partnerships have allowed us to uh, to kind of refine the technology and uh, and to train it to uh, to read and write um, at increasing levels of uh, of accuracy and fidelity. Um, and you know, once you've got a machine that can observe the world and and tell you about it, um, there are plenty of ways to monetize that. But you need to get the training data in front of it. Um, and you know, this this training data is uh, is is kind of key. Um, because you, you're not just doing kind of things like, is this a cat or is this a dog? But you're actually sitting down and saying, I've got a hundred documents in front of me. They describe, um, a situation in Northern Iraq. Can you write me a briefing, um, you know, about what happened today? What's significant, what's important, what the relationships are, the context of where this has come from. And can you have that, you know, personalized for me as a two page briefing? So that's, that's a hard and difficult problem. Um, it needs a lot of training data to go into it. Um, it needs to observe a lot of previous briefings that have been written um, to start to understand not just how to write, but also what to write about. Um, and so implicit in this is, is a sort of a measurement of, of everything that's significant in the world. And if you, think about, if you think about that as the kind of the global challenge, observe the world, understand what happened, figure out what is significant, um, and then figure out how to, uh, to represent that in language. And, and that's, that's the goal. And it's, it's a fairly... It's a fairly big and, and, and audacious goal is to build a, you know, a, a state space, um, you know, system for the world to, to kind of determine the, spa the state space of the world and how it's changing. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, let me summarize that by way of reading from Primer's website where you say, quote, we build machines that can read and write, automating the analysis of very large data sets. Primer's technology is deployed by some of the world's largest government agencies, financial institutions, and Fortune 50 companies. And our mission is to accelerate our understanding of the world. End of quote. So is it fair to say that you're a defense contractor with this one? So yeah, with with us, um, the, a large part of our, our customer base is on the intelligence side um, of the equation. And uh, Inqtel, yeah, so Inqtel has been an investor in us, and we're one of the early investors in our um, in our technology. And look, it makes a lot of sense uh, if you're an intelligence analyst, uh, you sit down. Um, there's there's uh, tens of thousands of you. Um, your job every day is to uh, is to understand your part of the world. Um, there is a lot of different data coming at you from a lot of different places. Um, and you know you're literally overwhelmed uh, with with both the volume of information and the complexity and the rapid changing nature of the world that we're in. And so, as an intelligence analyst, your job is to find a kind of a ground truth, distill that information, and present it back. And so, for us, um, it's a very very natural place for building machines that that um, that can read and write is to slot into this workflow uh, to start automating the generation of intelligence about the world. And once you've got that, that frees the human analysts up. To start to uh, to do things that are uh, that are a little more human in the nature, um, figure out the so what's and the what ifs, um, rather than just crunching through the data to see what exactly happened. Um, and so, so that that's been, I think, a pretty natural place. Um, if you look at you know the remit of intelligence is to understand uh, the the nature of where the world is and how it's changing, and then to give that that information to people that need to make decisions. You were in stealth mode for a couple of years uh, with Primer. Uh, now that you come came out of stealth mode, is there something that you can tell us now that you couldn't tell us before about Primer? We can tell you what we're doing. <laughs> we stayed we stayed in stealth mode for for two and a half years actually, and uh, we did that for a number of reasons. Um, the first was, um, you know, once once you put your head up in, in the world of AI, um, you know, everyone wants to kind of talk to you, and you know that's great. Love love talking and and telling the stories of what we're doing and and why we're doing it, but at some point you've got to build the technology and um, I wanted, you know, myself and the team to put our heads down and, and build this technology. And, um, you know, any new technology takes time and, and a lot of effort and a lot of late nights and um, a lot of struggling with science to make it work. And so for two and a half years, we, we, we did just that. And it was the easiest thing to do was to, to just keep quiet about it. And, you know, I wasn't going to be in a place where I wanted to, you know, claim all sorts of, um, you know, things that we might do. I wanted to show the world what we could do. And so uh, when we came through with that, um, that was that was the, uh, I, I think, the, the idea behind keeping in stealth mode. And, um, and now, um, you know, we've been out of stealth mode for about five or six months. Um, you know, we've been able to show a, a bunch of the different um, capabilities and, and, and talk through some of the different use cases. Um, but there's a lot more to come. We've got, uh, I think, a, a number of big announcements coming out in the coming uh, the coming um, uh, months, which um, will, will show more and more of, of the capabilities we've been refining. Wow. I can't wait to see what's coming down the pipe. But how big are you now then? We were 45 people um, and we're still... Uh, about 38 of those are engineers, um, and so still massively um, technical uh, team. And um, you know, there's, there's, uh, I think there's a sort of a saying that the first 50 people that you have defines the kind of the culture and the nature of your company. And 
and we certainly wanted that to be uh, to be focused around um, engineering and, uh, and and particularly machine learning. Uh, What about revenue? Yeah, we've we've got um, a good amount of revenue. It's in uh, sort of uh, certainly um, uh, enough to be interesting for us. <laughs> It's uh, enough to be interesting to us too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So on, on the numbers of things, there. Look, you know, it's uh, it, it's uh, the, the the what I will say is, look, these are big deals that we have with the uh, the uh, the companies and and, and the uh, the government, and um, you know, they they are um, you know commensurate with the. Uh, The level of, of the technology that we have, and so, you know that 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 means that um, you don't need too many of them to uh, to to run a, a large team. And, and um, I think one of the advantages of uh, of working in the world of finance and Fortune 50 and, and big government agencies is you get some very very big check sizes um, that allow you to uh, to dive very very deeply into the technology and make sure it um sure it works at a, at a level that's uh, that's needed by these customers. Mm -hmm. Is Peter Thiel an investor in that company too? No, Peter's uh, Peter's not an investor in, in this company. And um, you know, from that side, I think it was, you know, when you come through a uh, when you come through, um, I think your second company, it's it's important to get a bit of space and a bit of breathing room so that you can come up with different ideas and uh, and have different voices around that board table. And so uh, we um, we had the uh, the first round um, was led um, actually led by our Bloomberg um, Bloomberg Investment Fund. Um, there's a number of uh, different institutional investors that came through on that, um, including Lux uh, Capital out of New York and Josh Wolf's uh, team there, um, but also uh, Matt Ocko and, and Data Collective (DCVC), um, as well as um, a uh, as well as a number of other institutional investors that came together. So uh, we've got a good group um, around the table, and I think people that are specialized in the uh, the AI and machine learning um, uh, space, and um, also have a deep technology focus and uh, And that that's been uh, it's been a great group to kind of uh, um, to build this with. Mm -hmm. Where do you get the data from? Yeah, so there's there's two sort of main buckets of data that you look at for for, um, for these things. The first is these uh, corporations and government agencies have huge amounts of data that sit inside of their world, and so um, you know particularly data that is um, you know looking at um, you know uh, more complex uh, data. Um, so language that that's written about um, about you know from by analysts that uh, you know is is uh, I guess more complex than uh, than just kind of simple categorization. So so these companies have huge amounts of data. Um, they uh, they they uh, haven't you know to this point kind of made um, a lot of use of that because the uh, the technology for for reading language has not really been up to the kinds of levels. Um, so we were able to kind of get um, a large amount of data from inside of these organizations and use that to help them kind of generate, um, you know, uh, a lot more insights about their world. And then the second bit is there's a lot of information in the world uh, around us. Um, and so as we look at that, there's probably um, anywhere from uh, 50% of the external, 50% internal uh, through to some organizations where the number is more like 70% internal and 30% external. So it's that marrying up. If you're a, uh, If you're an organization, um, you know, like Walmart, you're going to have a lot of data about the world that you're in, right? Um, and indeed, you're going to have a, a pretty good kind of barometer of, of uh, sales and consumer purchasing and so on. But, you know, if you're operating in Mexico or you're operating in, in India or you're operating in China, you know, you're going to be operating in environments where you don't necessarily have all that data. And so being able to kind of take all the information inside of China um, that, that is publicly accessible. So what does that mean, publicly accessible? Uh, information. Yeah. So if you look at the landscape of Chinese um, 
um, data. Social media. So you've got social media. Um, you've got um, you've got mainstream media. You've got blogs. You've got government statements. You've got um, financial data from the markets that are coming through. Um, you've got a whole uh, kind of ecosystem of of, uh, of, of, of information. Um, that starts to reflect the way that the world is. Now, if you've got regulation that's coming out in China, there's going to be some, you know, information about that. Um, if you've got, you know, some, you know, behaviors of mergers and acquisitions, if you've got some statements from key political uh, party members, if you've got some supply chain issues, um, all of that's going to be encoded in, um, in information inside of China. And if you can surface that up, um, determines what's significant, determine what's relevant, and then, and then transfer that back um, to an organization like Walmart, then all of a sudden they have a, a lens into that part of the world that is able to kind of augment their internal data and give them a much more complete view of the world that they're operating in. So speaking of data, I want to bring two quotes from you again here. One is uh, from uh, another blog post of yours called Prediction is a Parlor Trick, uh, and or maybe even the same one. And the other one is from your TEDx Auckland uh, video. So the first one is this, quote, this is the next frontier of data science. We are slowly moving from prediction engines to what we'll start to call persuasion engines or what others with a more skeptical perspective might call manipulation engines, end of quote. And the other one is like this, and it's from the TEDx Auckland video at 15 minutes and 15 seconds, 50 seconds each, quote, you start to realize that with an audience level of with an advanced level of intelligence, perhaps you can start to manipulate it. And if you can start to manipulate it, you can also realize the power of this software for good or for bad. End of quote. So I'm using this as a context to ask you this, Sean. Um, how is Quid and or Primer different from, let's say, a company that's been very kind of in the news lately called Cambridge Analytica. Because you're doing data science, you're using the same data, it seems, to a large extent, or at least there's very large overlap. Are you different, similar in some ways, and so on? Yeah, look, I, look, come back a step on this stuff, and I think the, the, the place to kind of start on this is, you know, what are the current capabilities of the technology that exists in the world? And the current capabilities of that technology are to actually to, to understand um, things that are happening in the world um, that were previously a mystery or perhaps are a mystery when we're experiencing it as individuals. So this, this kind of dynamic is that you can see things through data that, um, that are, are, are deeper realities that um, we as humans um, experiencing the world ourselves don't see. So once you've got that capability, you've got a couple of things, right, you can do with it. The first thing you can do is you can um, teach, right? And so I can say, look, let me teach you about how the world is, right? Let, right, let, 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 let me tell you about how the world is. Um, you can also uh, manipulate, which is let me tell you about how the, the world might be in a way that benefits me and not you. And so when you look at this kind of trade-off is, right, the technology exists um, to allow us to see the world differently. And I can use that to teach you. I can use that to manipulate you. When I say I, um, I'm not using it to teach you or manipulate you, but I mean that it, it very much. I, I mean that is, is the technology can be used to teach you. The technology can be used to manipulate you. It has been used for both, it seems to me. 
It has. It has. And the technology has by, um, you know, you're seeing in Cambridge Analytica, it's being used to manipulate. Um, you see with um, with what we're doing and where we, we very much are with Primer is, is using it to teach. And, you know, I, I believe ultimately teaching is, is, is not only the right way to use this technology, it's also the more profitable way. So why why do you believe that? Why do you think to why do you seem to be taking a different strategic approach? Because you you guys have largely the same tool in your hands, right? They decided to do this, and you're deciding to do that. Why? I, I look. I, I think that the technology that that we've got in our hands with with the ability to read and write is is actually much more sophisticated. It's um, much more sophisticated than the, the, the data analytics that at least we've seen publicly from the likes of Cambridge Analytica out in front. So, you know, the capabilities to, to work with language, I think, are, are much more um, powerful. Um, so why go after um, truth and not manipulation? Is that the question? Yeah, absolutely. That is the question because, you know, my blog is about ethics. My blog from the get-go, the, the core idea has always been technology is not enough. But unfortunately, and I spent some time in the Valley too, the money is enough usually, isn't it? Look, I don't think you can build a long-term um, company uh, that, that's, that's in any way meaningful if, if your, your business is manipulation. I, I, I... Isn't that what marketing... Uh, well, let's let's forget about Cambridge Analytica for a second, but in a not so bad or creepy way, marketing basically is taking a product and selling it to people that they were not aware of and didn't seem to be interested in before. So in a way, you manipulate them to develop interest and then affinity and then eventually dependency <laughs> right. long term to your product. Isn't that what marketing does? Yeah. So look, that's the heart of marketing. It's arguably the heart of Facebook. Um but the technology can also be used and should be used um, to educate us, to teach us. And the, the key dynamic is, is it working for you or is it working for somebody else? And I think if the technology is working for you and it's not trying to buy and sell and manipulate you, then you have the technology's available power to teach you about the world as, 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 it, as, as it benefits you. And if you look at finance, like you can you know, build something that, um, <laughs> that manipulates, you know, your, your view about how the world is in finance, but that's, that's not as valuable to you as if you can expose a deeper truth and intelligence, like you have to know what's happening on the ground and the truth is important and being able to kind of, um, build software to help people see that truth is incredibly valuable. I agree with you about the inherent value of truth, but it seems to me that based on the last presidential elections, at least, or the data gathered during that process taught me that for a certain part of the population, truth is irrelevant. What matters more is, is, is ideology or a story, and especially for Cambridge Analytica, manipulating it in a way in which, as you said, benefits me and not you. And in this case, the, presidential, the, the current president. Yeah, look, it, I, I would say on, on the balance of, of, of uh, manipulation and teaching, manipulation is easier than teaching because it doesn't really matter, you know, about truth. Um, I, can, I can manipulate you one way or another um, or I can teach you one way or another. And it's perhaps more profitable, at least in this occasion, in this case. It's easier, I think, the monetize. technology to manipulate. Uh, well, just to do, I think. The, the technology for manipulation, I think, is easier than the technology for teaching. Um, but, and it probably is at the ground level easier to monetize. Um, 
however, like the the ability to kind of get um, the ability to get money from from the the using this technology pursuit of truth um, is also possible. And you know the customers that we have are very much orientated around um, understanding truth, and and that is something they pay very very well for. So I, I I don't I don't you know believe for a moment that there isn't money to be made uh, by building systems that allow us to see truth, and um, you know that's that's the game that we're in. Um, there will be plenty of people that will build technologies that will try and manipulate you, um, but for us um, it, it's it's about trying to teach and educate you, and the the two bits of that that come out one is that as you get more and more technologies that are there trying to kind of distort and manipulate the world as you see it you absolutely need to have technologies that can help you see through that um, that sea of propaganda and and that that becomes more and more um, powerful as more and more machines are writing stories to manipulate you you need machines to read them to help you get through that and and, and actually have defenses against it so this is this is something that's not going to go away. We can give up on truth, but I, I think that would be a that would be a mistake. Um, and of course, any new technology that you bring to the table, it can do things that are good. It can do things that are bad. Um, for us, um, you know, we think ethically the right thing to do is truth, and we think actually that aligns very very well with profitability as well. And and I totally am in support of that, and, and I congratulate you for it, but. Do you think that that's kind of like the large scale sort of practice? I mean, let's talk about Facebook for a second, right? Uh, Mark Zuckerberg was in Congress a few days ago testifying for hours. Um, and and afterwards, by the way, uh, I have here, I'm looking at it right now, uh, an article uh, at uh, NewYorkMag.com titled, The Internet Apologizes, Even... Even those who designed our digital world are aghast at what they have created. And it gives a breakdown of what went wrong from the architects who built it. And then it goes through those people or some of the key people in the internet and how they were like basically apologizing for their Frankenstein, if you will. So is that where we're at now? Look, I, I, where, where are we? On this thing, look, I, I think stepping back here, we've got um, technology that's incredibly powerful. Like we've got the ability to um, to train uh, models that can start to replicate different aspects of human cognition. This is an amazing, you know, technology that um, we can do some wonderful things with, right? However, we can also do some things that are not so wonderful. And I think one of the things as we look back in the last five years of the emergence of Facebook is we gave our data and we gave, more importantly, um, our view of the world to a company whose sole purpose was to advertise to us, to get us addicted, and to manipulate our behavior and preferences. We didn't have to economically do that. We could have um, given that to a company that, that wasn't intent on manipulating us. Um, but we didn't. But as you said, it's harder to it's harder to not do that. It's easier to just go for the low hanging fruit. That's exactly it's the most profitable way. And in the absence of any regulation, that's where the market based economy led itself. And of course, Peter Thiel is one of the early investors in Facebook. Absolutely. 
absolutely. And, you know, it's an incredibly profitable space to take 2 billion people, take their time and space and, 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 and manipulate their, their preferences and behaviors. So look, that's not, maybe not a surprise. That's where capitalism led us. Capitalism and, and the absence of regulation led us to the most profitable space, which turned out to be manipulation. So do you think we should do something about it? And if, if yes, what? Absolutely. I mean, I've been you know, a, a critic of, uh, of this business model um, for, for a long time and, and you know, been on record as saying, look, that this is, this is not the right way uh, for us to kind of use this technology. Where I think things have to go is I can't reasonably expect to have a free experience um, where I am the product that gives me an accurate view of the world. I need to pay for that. And you need to align the incentives of me owning the algorithms and the algorithms working for me to explain the world as I need to see it. If I don't own them. If it's not working for me, it's working for someone else. And I have no faith or belief that what I'm seeing isn't um, there to, 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 to drive someone else's agenda and manipulate me. So this, this, this dichotomy of manipulation and teaching, um, whether it works for me or it works for you, is really, really important. And so where we would take things with, with, with where we are with Primer is very much that the algorithms should work for you, that you should be the owner of them, that they should work for your benefit. And that's just a big, big difference from how most people engage uh, with algorithms where you don't own them, the data is not yours, and they're not working for your benefit. And that's, that's, that's that twist that needs, needs to happen. And that's fundamentally important, but how can the, 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 the playing field ever be equal between, let's say, a, a single user like me uh, and, and, let's say, uh, InQtel or Walmart or Facebook or anyone else? Like... I mean, can I even use your platforms, uh, Quid and Primer, as a single individual? So, look, with, with Primer, um, you know, I think with technology, as you bring it, bring it to, to market, it, um, it's expensive, right? So you need to put a lot of time and effort and, 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 and talent behind the technology to make, it, um, to make it actually real. So you've got to get that money from somewhere. And so you've got to work with um, a number of people that have got fairly deep pockets to push um, the technology forward. What you see as that comes through is that the technology becomes cheaper, it becomes more widely distributed. And um, you know the goal for us with Primer is to get into the hands of as many people as possible. And so we really want to see this into the hands of consumers. Uh, we know that there's a, a, a trajectory that we have to go through to develop the technology. It's expensive at the moment. It will become cheaper and we're seeing it become cheaper and more performant. Um, and as it goes through that journey, um, you know, we want uh, to get into the hands of as many people as possible. And so I think, I think there's a number of ways to do that. And we'll be um, releasing some of the technology um, to, the, to the larger uh, public um, in the coming months. Um, and um, I think that's going to be very, very important. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I believe this, um, I believe this uh, 100% that, you know, uh, the, if we can build intelligence that works for us, that we can get into the hands of as many people as possible, this is inherently a good thing for the world, and it's um, hopefully a bit of an antidote against uh, the world that we've been living in, which has been technology um, not working for us, um, you know, to manipulate us. And so, you know, this uh, this kind of journey, I think, you know, we're we're at the early stages of that. Um, but if we fast forward a few years, um, you know, having uh, a system in your pocket that observes the world, 
that can teach you about the world that you're seeing, um, can explain it to your natural language and write you stories for your benefit um, is something that I think would be immensely valuable for a large, large number of people on this planet. Mm -hmm. Sean, we only have a couple of minutes left here, so I want to crank up the pace. I have three or four quick questions that I want to go through. So you do, you are optimistic then, are you or, or not that, that, you know, democracy and, and sort of free will while under attack still can survive in the future? Because it seems to me in a world of manipulation at the mass scale, hyper-targeting, uh, uh, what, what do you call it, uh, psychometrics or what was it, psychographics and, and all of that stuff, behavioral manipulation basically, both free will and democracy are up for the taking if not already taken, at least in the case of Brexit and the last presidential election. Yeah, look, we, we, we saw the, uh, the, the ramifications of, of, a, of a society that was collecting its view of the world through algorithms that it didn't control. Um, you know, that has to change. If we're going to have democracy, part of democracy is, is, uh, is education and, um, and information that is, is, uh, is aligned with, with how the world is. Um, the world is very complex. Um, we need um, algorithms that can teach us about the world. That are, that are able to deal with this complexity, and we need to distribute them widely. So if we want democracy to kind of persist and we want that to kind of exist in the future, the technology we build has to support that. And um, it hasn't. The technology that's been built to date um, hasn't supported that, and it's actually even worse, it's worked to undermine that. Um, and so, you know, that, that's kind of, uh, I, think, I, I think, if you want to be optimistic, and I do, is that, look, I can deploy this technology. It can read through scientific papers. It can um, put together briefings for me about the current state of AI, and I use that every week. You know, with the technology we built at Primer to keep up to date with a fast-changing scientific landscape. And and I know that there's no way I could do that without the aid and abetment of this technology. And so, like this technology can help us understand the world. It can help us keep track of it. Um, and, and, and if you do that, then I think there's every reason to kind of be optimistic about all of this. Um, but there are some changes that need to be made. And, uh, you know, we can't expect an advertising-driven uh, algorithmic system to give us a view of the world that's meaningful. Mm -hmm. Sean, I'd love to keep you here forever, but I know your time is very valuable. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to use this as an excuse to ask you for another interview, maybe a few months, maybe a year down the road, which hopefully I can do in person and get like do it really properly but in the meantime let me close our conversation today with my usual two questions first one of which is where can people find more about you and your work um so the two places you can go to um you can go to uh, primer.ai and you'll see uh, some of the work as we start talking more about the technology and its capabilities and the second is um, my twitter handle is probably the uh the probably the most active place um uh twitter handle is at escorley um, and you can go and uh, take a look at um, the things I've been reading and the things I've been thinking uh, through that. And, um, of course, if you want to go deeper into some of these blog posts or uh, pieces, you can go to my website, seangawley.com. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And after a 90-minute conversation with, with you today, what do you want the parting message to be for our audience today? Look, I think the parting message coming through is is we've got some amazing technologies that science has has has, uh, has worked very very hard to give us that can replicate different pieces and different parts of the human cognitive process. How we choose um, to to use and engage with these will 
be um, instrumental in terms of how our society evolves and adapts over the coming decade. Um, I'm, for one, I'm a believer that this technology can help us um, educate and understand um, the world around us. And I think that's incredibly important as, as we look at an increasing complexity in the world. So, you know, I, I think we as, 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 as consumers, we as humans um, need to kind of make some decisions about the information that's coming into us, where it's coming from, and, um, you know, what's filtering that. And uh, I think if you don't own the algorithm, the algorithm owns you. And um, I think we need to make um, decisions to kind of uh, to, to make sure that these things are working for us. And, um, you know, I, I, I think the last couple of weeks have been a, a wake up call for a lot of people uh, to sit down and say, well, um, I need to take control and ownership of these algorithms. And, um, you know, I think if we do that, they're going to work for us and we're going to see some amazing things. I sure hope you're right. Sean Gorley. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. My pleasure. If you guys enjoyed this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation. 